Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bijou Banter. Today, we're going to be talking about two fantastic movies. But before we do that, here in the Zoom studio with me are Matthew Hutt and Orson Todd. Roman down, but that's not going to stop us. We're going to be talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High, the 1982 classic high school movie. And we're also going to be talking about 2019's Little Women, one of the best movies ever made, in my opinion. But we're going to get to that in a little bit because we're going to start with Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is directed by Amy Heckering. It stars Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, Judge Reinhold, and a bunch of other people, including a small cameo from Nicolas Cage. And it's about a bunch of people who enjoy uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and they're all kind of losers in their own way. What do we think? This is my favorite, like, 80s teen comedy movie because it's just like a bunch of stories kind of interwoven together, and I just love it so much. It's not a long movie. It's pretty, you know, I wouldn't say it's disposable because it's not like one of those type movies, but like you can just get in and get out. It's easy to understand what's going on. And it's really funny too. Sean Penn truly carries this movie with like his humor as Spicoli. So I just love everything about this movie. I think it's a really, really great uh, high school comedy. And not that it's like underrated or anything, but I feel like in the, in the world of 80s comedies, this is one that isn't really talked as much as say like, I don't know, like I, Animal House wasn't the 80s, that was the 70s, or like Blues Brothers or Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like those kinds of movies. But I think it's on the same level. And it is very much just a bunch of subplots tied together. And what I find so interesting about it is that even though it is more just about these high scores, it's really an examination of just the entire 80s teenage culture. And explores every single bit about it from just like the classes, the really like stubborn teachers and adults, uh, the mall hangouts, uh, dead end jobs, and as most especially um, sexual activity. But it's all done in a really like raw, but also sensitive way. And that's what I really like about it. It's not mean spirited. It's not really, it doesn't talk down to high scores. It really celebrates it in the most genuine way and like I could just tell that watching all these actors who many of them were it, it was some of their first film roles and then they went on to win academy awards and all that it just seemed like everyone had such a fun time making this movie you really sense just the enjoyment found in the writing the acting and the directing and I think it's just a excellent movie from start to finish it's such a fun time I had never seen this before this week and I thought it was pretty fun. Uh, I think, I don't know, I might have just like missed my time frame to really, really appreciate it. But it's not, it's not my favorite teen movie. That's always going to be Ferris Bueller. But it was still, it was still a fun time. Everybody seemed to be having fun. And Sean Penn was really having fun playing, I want to say McCluskey, but that's not his name. Uh, Spicoli. I wasn't even close. And like, yeah, it was a fun time. Uh, Something but, interesting. Oh, yeah. sorry. Oh, no, no it's just something interesting about Spicoli. So Sean Penn based that off of like a dude who was like a real, like real life Spicoli guy. You know, he was like the whole like party. He gets high all the time, you know, has sex and all does all this crazy stuff. And so that's who he based the character off of this real life dude. And then years later, like decades, he was like hiking in like Hawaii or something. I don't know where he was. And he saw like a family ahead of him. And it was just like a really ordinary looking family. And like they were, he was, they were coming towards each other. And the dude, the father called out to him. He's like, oh, hey, Sean, what's up? And then, you know, this guy's a really just square looking dude, very ordinary kind of dad guy. And Sean Penn realized it was this guy. 
he was just like an ordinary dude now and so he was like wow that was like crazy to see like he had completely changed from like this party animal to now he's just like a regular average guy so I, that's just very interesting i think that's fantastic oh that's so cool um i did want to ask about spicoli though is like considering that this is an anthology movie there's a lot of sort of individual characters and they all go about their days does like is spicoli the best one of those because he seems i don't know he seemed like the best one to me and it almost seemed to detract from everybody else because I kept was because I was always like I want to go back to Spicoli. He's definitely the most iconic um, character from the movie. Like when I think of Fast Times at Richmond High, I think of Spicoli just because he has this unbelievable like presence just with his like surfer broy attitude. He's always drinking. He orders a pizza to to class. It's just he's such a goofball, but. I, I do really like his sort of subplot. He doesn't really interact with the other characters as much. He's literally just in his own world. He dreams of becoming like this surfer, but he's just like stoned all the time. But I like how it shows this relationship between like this really supposedly dumb character, but he's actually kind of smart in a weird way against like this really strict uh, history teacher, Mr. Hand. And their sort of relationships is like, why are you always wasting my time? It's just like, well, since, you know, we're in class together, isn't it technically our time? It's like, it's, that's just so much fun. I really, I really do like that. And I, and even in the end, they kind of like make amends in, in a weird way. He's like, they all, he always has a student kind of like Spicoli. He's just like, oh, you'll, you'll learn when you're older. It's just like, that's really nice. And it doesn't really detract in any way, considering the whole movie is just full of subplots. Like if it did have one consistent narrative and we just had Spicoli kind of on the side, then it would be really awkward. But I think it works just because the whole movie is just a bunch of small stories. I think something I really like about his character, this is a weird comparison, but he's kind of like the Deadpool to like the Fox X-Men universe where like these characters are like the main X-Men where like he's not really a part of it but he kind of just shows up sometimes like I know there obviously only been two Deadpool films but like I think a scene that really works is the scene where like the class is at the hospital and like the teacher is you know saying all right you can go on into the room and then Smicoli's just in there and he grabs him, he's like are you in my class and he's like I am today and then like that's just such a great scene because it's so small and simple and I think that's what the character does best it's like I feel like if he was like the main character of the movie like the one we followed throughout I wouldn't say the routine would have gotten old but it kind of would have been like oh this guy's maybe a little unlikable like we see why like the teacher has a problem with him but because he's like not really like a minor character but just he shows up you know every like 10 minutes or so I think it works I'm glad you said that about like the small scenes because I feel like that's what this movie does really really well like there's so many scenes in it that I feel I've seen referenced in other places and they're just so iconic but they're also so small just like when the guy is scalping tickets or when the girl says to the guy scalping tickets that he's pregnant or that she's pregnant not he's pregnant um, or just, uh, when Spicoli walks in and says, I don't know, there's just so many like little scenes that I feel really make this film different from a lot of high school movies. It's a fun, it's a fun way to do a high school movie, to have an anthology instead of this overarching narrative. And I've got to ask though, where does it rank in the sort of echelon of high school movies? I think for me it's like I said at the beginning it's my favorite I you know I I'm gonna drop a hot take I'm not the biggest fan of the breakfast club I think it's fine it's just not one I really you know I watched and I never I didn't really vibe with it like some of my other friends did 
but uh yeah it kind of ranks in that i like what matthew said about how like it is kind of underrated where i feel like a lot of more people you know know about ferris bueller know about you know dazed and confused and stuff like that and then like i'll mention like fast times to like some of my just ordinary friends are like oh i've never seen that but then all the other ones they've seen but then my like real film friends they're like oh i know what that is so it's interesting it does kind of get left behind sometimes but i think it's one that is just so unique because it's it is an anthology it's so different from like what those movies were at that time and so for me it's really special i i always tend to prefer uh the high school films made by john hughes like Ferris Bueller and Breakfast Club are two of my favorite, not only high school movies, but just movies, period. Mostly because what those movies do is that they tell it in a very honest way that's very down to earth, especially Breakfast Club. It's it, I consider that even more dramatic, just exploring the cliques and the personal issues that they go through. I think Fast Times succeeds in just being a straight up comedy. Like it's just fun. And it's not just like Ferris Bueller is also a really fun movie, but it also uh, explores more just the culture of Chicago and the themes, which is like, okay, why don't we just like ditch school and go on an adventure? It do, it takes a bit of a more, I guess, fantastical turn in a way, but Fast Times is down to earth and just being a straight up comedy, exploring the sort of anxieties and like the um culture of the 80s in all these different locations but also exploring these different characters who are have their own sort of goals and come from different backgrounds but it's all just taking place under one roof because high school is just like that it's just this melting pot of all these identities coming together and while breakfast club explores that in a dramatic way as individuals fast times like i said is just it's fun like it just every single every single moment like it just jumps from scene to scene with so many iconic beats and moments and just tells it in a way that's that is very unique like there's not many high school movies that are anthology films which i i wouldn't mind seeing another film try to do something like this like today if it was if it took place in like modern times and it had an anthology style to it i think it would work really well but I've got to ask, is it really that down to earth? Because admittedly, I didn't go to high school in the 80s, so I don't know what the culture was like. But it feels like it feels almost more fantastical than Ferris Bueller, because Ferris Bueller, you know, is like sort of gimmicky. And like, of course, he's going to get away with it. But it still felt like or not Ferris Bueller, the Breakfast Club. The Ferris Bueller is totally fantastical. Like the Breakfast, the Breakfast Club felt feels really down to earth. And this feels a little bit like everything's being exaggerated just because like sex is everywhere. And then like there's people smoking weed all the time and everybody's on dope, as Mr. Han says. And just is it actually down to earth or is it trying to be this exaggerated sort of version of it? I feel like it's trying to be both. Like like you said, I did not go to school in the 80s, but I think because it like knows it's a comedy, like it's very self-aware, I feel like it knows what it's doing. And so I think in that sense it's exaggerated. But I bet, you know you know, that's when probably sex and drugs and rock and roll was very prominent with teens that age. So I don't know, it's hard to say. I think it's a mix of both. I think it's interesting that you bring that up because something I always forget is that uh, Fast Times was based off a book uh, by Cameron Crowe. And he wrote that based on his own experiences of going to a high school, like in his early twenties undercover and pretending he was a a high school student. And he basically wrote this book about just sort of the culture of high schoolers. So if we're looking at through those lens, in a way, I think this movie is sort of an examination of high school through probably the eyes of an adult 
because Cameron Crowe was obviously he wasn't like much older than than these kids were when he wrote this book but he had a different perspective on it where it was just okay all these kids are just obsessed with sex and sort of like all all on not all of them but like most of them are probably on some sort of substance like there's this sort of authority that's looming over them that's just a total buzzkill to their like sort of free spirited nature and I think if we're looking at it through those lenses, I'd say that it is an exaggeration, but it's because we're looking at it through the eyes of someone that's older, which that's an interesting way of looking at the movie too, is that if we look at it through those eyes, then yeah, it's definitely exaggerated, but it's because it's not from the eyes of a high school student. I don't know if it translates nearly as well to the screen, but from the book, it probably would be a lot more apparent. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say um, that it's by someone who's older. I mean, partly because it's interesting that he went to a high school undercover. I always love those stories, like Tom Holland doing it and all these other people who do it, just because, I don't know, I think it's kind of fun. But it does sort of feel like an older person's idealized version of high school. Like, it very much feels like all the things that people sort of either wish was going on or the things that we sort of remember about high school and never actually high school which is why I feel it's a little bit more exaggerated and a little bit more fantastical just because I don't know I didn't have or I didn't have the same high school experience but like sex wasn't rampant drugs weren't rampant I don't know just feels a little fantastical but that's good I like fantastical movies uh and then I've got to ask what sort of did because I hired a bunch of unknowns for this movie who happened to become these gigantic actors in the future. Uh, what did doing that sort of add to the movie? I think what it did was it didn't make it seem like, oh, it's Sean Penn playing this guy. It's just some guy playing this guy, you know? It doesn't, you know, the faces, I mean, for me, weren't that recognizable. I know the actors, obviously, but like if I saw this at the time, it wasn't so-and-so playing this character. You're just watching the character. And I think that's what makes it really down to earth and real it, it adds a lot more to the movie i think because now looking back it's it is really in a way amusing to see all these really famous actors like at such a young age doing this really silly high school movie but if we're looking at it what you said orson if if we saw this back in like 1982 i think it just would have added a lot more to the movie because I think all the actors in it are really, really good too. Like, especially like Sean, we've been talking about Sean Penn a lot, but I think Jennifer Jason Lee does a fantastic job as well playing these characters because they not only look uh, really young, but also they feel a lot like high school students and like their dialogue and the way they sort of work off each other. But even then just like their like presence on screen, like in their postures and also sort of the way they handle these situations. It feels very real. And I think that's what makes the film work. If it had been like a really famous actor from the time who is like in tons of movies, it would have just been more distracting. And I think casting a bunch of unknowns only helped the film probably succeed in a way because it just felt like a living, breathing, fictional version of high school that I guess a lot of people experienced at that time. Then because I keep comparing this to other high school movies, mostly because like it sort of has to be because all high school movies are sort of in conversation with each other. But was the casting of like, what's his face? Uh, Ferris Bueller, 
distracting because at the time he was well known and we know him well now is that distracting or is that a different case but i think it's different because you said that's a very fantastical kind of movie it's obviously unrealistic and not saying this is and isn't unrealistic but it's not being as like fantastical as ferris bueller was trying to be where you know not they don't really in fast times get into a lot of crazy situations that are unrealistic per se whereas in ferris bueller i feel like they do like him trying to like run like you know however many miles to get home that's that's just very unrealistic that's not real so i think it works there but in this case it also works for fast times to not have familiar faces at the time okay i can see that I also don't know how famous he was at the time, but yeah, the more fantastical side. Yeah, I get that. I get that totally. And then also we're talking about this today, not because it's some random movie we picked out. It's because it's getting a Criterion release at some point in the next year. Why is it getting a Criterion release? Because I feel like it's not going to be forgotten. It's not something that necessarily needs to be preserved. Like a lot of people still like and talk about fast times and it's not, I don't know. It just feels like a very strange pick to go to Triterion. It's like the Irishman. It just feels like something they're just sort of picking to be like, look at us. We're the Criterion Collection. We have movies you like. Now watch Harakiri. I think I think the reason why it's getting crazy, like I, when they announced it, I was not expecting them to release it, but I was actually happy because I think for one thing, going back to the actors, just like a lot of really big stars got their start from this little movie, but it also goes to that just sort of the way it shows high school students in sort of a very personal and raw way. And keep in mind, The Breakfast Club is also in the Criterion Collection. They, they released that a few years back. And those and those two, I think it, it's an interesting, uh, like uh, not double feature, but it's interesting that both of them are in there just because they show high school in the 80s in really different ways, but also delivering sort of a similar experience too. And the film was, it's also in the National Film Registry as well, Fast Times. And it got really, it got added pretty early in like 2004 or five. So it just shows that this movie did have quite a big impact actually just on like not only actors, but even just sort of in high school films. Cause I, even then I can't really think of a lot of high like films strictly about high school that were kind of that early like unless I'm just a complete idiot and I can't remember any but it's like this is one where it's like considering when it came out it came out nearly 40 years ago it feels very sort of um in quotes realistic but also it does kind of it's very playful with it so it has its place I think Yeah, I can see that. But also, like, I don't know. I don't think The Breakfast Club should have gotten into the Criterion Collection. That feels like, I don't know, the Criterion Collection just always feels like something a little bit more pretentious than The Breakfast Club and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Maybe it's good that they're expanding it more. But also, considering that it's in the American Film Institute, and cons or not the American Film Institute, the American Film Registry, and it's in the Criterion Collection, is it really fair to say that it's sort of overlooked? Or is it yeah, is it fair to say that it's overlooked or is it just sort of a critical darling? But those are people who like know film. I feel like maybe what Matthew meant and what I meant was like just regular people, just like my regular friends that aren't the most film 
knowledgeable, they don't really know what it is. Whereas we all, we all know what these kind of movies are. And so those are the same people too that probably have more knowledge than we do. So I, I don't think in that sense, it's not overlooked or overlooked, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Sorry, I just totally misunderstood what y'all were saying. Yeah, I guess it's overlooked. At the same time, though, like my stepdad doesn't know movies and my stepdad loves this movie. So I think I think it sort of depends on just who's seen it at the end of the day. My brother's girlfriend's dad doesn't even know who Martin Scorsese is. That's like a joke. He doesn't he doesn't know who he is. So like, you know, never underestimate how much people don't know about movies. Fair enough. Yeah, how do you not know who Martin Scorsese is? That's like, that's, he's, I would try to come up with another example, but he's the one example of that. Oh my God. We are baffled as much as you are. <laughs> uh, but sort of going back to Overlook, why is it overlooked? Like, why do people sort of skip over this one and like go to Ferris Bueller, go to The Breakfast Club? I think I think those movies are a bit more accessible in a way like because I, I don't know it, it's an interesting question actually that you that you brought up I think Ferris Bueller has just cemented itself and it's in sort of pop culture in a way because save Ferris and also has John Hughes John Hughes is one of the most well-known like writers and directors of just like high school and like adolescent comedies uh, Amy Heckerling who went on later went on to do clueless which is a really big cult classic I, I i don't know like i feel like this movie should have a bit more attention but it also could be because like it the director and the writer but also the fact that it's rated r and this is a hard r movie too not to mention like i think ferris viewer is pg so that that could a lot, a lot more people could see that breakfast club is rated r but it's not that bad it's more just like language and stuff whereas this one there's a lot of a lot of sex, a lot of nudity, a lot of drugs and all that. But I, I don't really know. I, I feel like it should be on the same like level of attention as those two movies do. Yeah, I was going to say exactly what Matthew just said. I was looking it up on my phone to see what uh, Breakfast Club is rated. Because Ferris Bueller, 16 Candles, that was, I mean, they got like some things in them. But yeah, Breakfast Club just really has like the scene where they get high, maybe a couple F-bombs or something. But this like, this is literally got Phoebe Cates, you know, taking off her, uh, or blooms and like stuff like that so you know it's not really a lot of things i feel like kids under the age of like 16 would be seeing nowadays with you know strict parents or something fair enough i gotta say though some of the hard r stuff i felt was a little excessive like the amount of nudity maybe it's just because i'm getting prudish as i get older but like the amount of nudity just felt just felt a little much but that might just be me i thought it was a little uncomfortable that like i mean obviously jennifer jason lee was not under 18 when she filmed this but like the fact that she is 15 and like she's basically doing full frontal nudity and like i was like okay i get it you know she is older than 18 in real life but still the character that just felt a little yeah, yeah that 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 part like i i kind of forgot about that first like 15 the first 15 minutes when she hooks up with the 26 year old stereo salesman just and goes to the dugout I'm just like oh man like I, I know Jennifer Jason Lee's over 18 like when she filmed it but it's still just really uncomfortable but I think it does add to the movie just because like she's so focused on wanting to like have sex like that's like her goal throughout the whole movie and then when she realizes at the end like no like like if I want to actually meet somebody i want to have a relationship and actually get to know the person i think 
like that's the more important message to take away. So I understand like why they focus so much on it for most of the movie, but then the end it actually does have like a good a good moral, and I think that's what what is more important to take away from it, which is interesting considering like. I've heard some reviews where they just think it is really ex- exploitive. Like I know Roger Ebert infamously said that the movie was like a scuzz pit or something. Like he hated this movie, but I think, yeah, on the surface, it is very like, I guess not exploitive, but there is a lot of, you know, nudity and sex, but more deep down when you really think about it, it has, it actually has a good message to it. So. Yeah. Although, in sort of going off the nudity and it being exploitative, if I didn't know this was directed by a woman beforehand, this would have been, like, the peak of male gaze for me. There's just so much, like, there's a shot in the beginning where it's just a bunch of women's butts just lined up, and they're like, look at this, it's the 80s, and it's it's a little uncomfortable. And I gotta say, I don't think, on the whole, it's aged, I think it's aged pretty well, but I'm not sure if it's aged perfectly well, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't think this aged perfectly too. Cause like even like a lot of the just the way it's shot, like I some one scene that's in particular is like when they're getting ready to like for that football game against Lincoln and it just it has like shots of like a like a woman's shirt with like kill Lincoln right near her her breast and like even like on the back of like the the jean the jean shorts and all that. But yeah, it, 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 there there are quite a bit of elements of male gaze to it, and even like the character, some of the characters in it are just like total womanizers too. It's it's kind of crazy, but I, I it it's it, it does help that it was at least directed by a woman. So because if it was directed by a man, that would be really really uncomfortable. But yeah, I I have to agree. I don't yeah like what I was saying. I don't think it's aged perfectly well either. It's just. I don't know. It also like it seems a little bit like it's playing into the black brute stereotype with the like guy who goes ape bananas or goes bananas because his car crashes and he starts like beating a bunch of people up on the football field. As good a scene as that is, it feels like it's playing into that stereotype just a little bit. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's definitely a product of its time, which I think is exactly what it wanted to be. I'd be curious if this would be one that would get made today i don't know that's like something i keep questioning like maybe if they got rid of the whole 15 element i could definitely see this being something made today i mean we got the american pie movies but you know i don't know if like the exact same movie would get made today i think i think it might get made exactly the same way but i think it would fly completely under the radar because i think for better or for worse but for better in my opinion teenage movies have sort of shifted away from that sort of view of high school and are much more like high school is kind of a rough time. And like edge of 17 is very much about that. And I can't think of another single modern high school movie for some reason. 17 again. 17 again. What a classic film. I was, uh, was going to say book smart, but okay. Oh yeah. Book smart. Um, book smart's kind of similar to this just in terms of raucousness. Super but. bad. That's like, I think that's like the closest comparison one could say. Yeah, I think so. I've never seen Superbad, but oh. from what I hear, oh, wow. it seems about right. You should. That yeah. That's one of the greatest high school movies ever made. Yeah. It's so funny. I'll put it on the list. But we're almost out of time for Fast Times at Ridgemont High, so final thoughts. I think, yeah, as we talked about throughout this whole review, it's just, it is a great movie. Whether or not someone appreciates, like, 
you know, the raunchy humor, that's up to them. But I just think it works so well for what this movie's going for. And the fact that like a lot of these people at the time were unknowns, it makes it even more special because you can really see how good of like actors and actresses they are. There are some really questionable things about it with like, you know, the nudity and like how it uh, exploits women and stuff. But overall, I think it just, it works well as a really good comedy and it's just one of my favorites and I love it. And like I said, the runtime is just like, I think it's an hour and 30 minutes. So you can easily just get in and get out and enjoy it and have a couple good laughs. I, I agree. I think this is a really, really great comedy. It's just, I've only seen it like a couple times, but like every time I see it, like it just, it just brings a smile to my face. It's just so, so much fun. And it, as silly as it is, it does tell a really honest, like, uh, story and quotes about high school experiences in, in a way that a lot of people could probably identify with in one way or another. And I think that's the beauty of high school movies is that no matter where you were in high school, there's one element of it that you could strongly identify and relate to. And I think this does it really well. I really like, really like it. And I definitely will be using a certain amount of currency to acquire the Criterion release. And I will give it an eight out of 10. I think the part that perfectly encapsulate this, this movie for me is the end credits bit where they go through like where they all are now because it's totally unnecessary, but it's hilarious. And it nails every single one of its characters perfectly and tells you exactly where they would be. And it's just, oh, it's so excellent and so funny. And I think I'm going to have to give this, I think I agree about an eight out of 10, maybe a seven, just because I don't know, comparatively with other high school movies, it's not quite my favorite, but it's still really good. So 7.58 out of 10 for me. That'll wrap up our conversation on Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And now we're going to move on to, dare I say, one of the best movies ever made, in my humble opinion, which is 2019's Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig. It stars Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Elizabeth Scanlon, and Florence Pugh, and is about Little Women, the book. Uh, it's about the marches, and they go about, and Joe wants to be a writer, and Amy wants to be a painter, and it's just lovely, in my opinion. But what do you guys think? Okay. I'm going to try and keep my hot take just as cool as possible. So I probably won't say a lot about this movie. I think it's really well acted, and it's very well made. I just, I didn't vibe with it. I don't know. This was just one where I was just kind of, while I was watching it, I was also checking Reddit threads about Justice, Justice League theories. I was like, what are people thinking? But I was also kind of listening in the background too and watching occasionally every couple seconds. But yeah, I thought it was, like I said, just very well made, just not really for me. I think it's a little interesting. And this is just my opinion that people nowadays tend to complain about like the superhero movies or the remakes that are like oh well, Hollywood doesn't do anything original but then this comes along and people are like it's one of the greatest things ever for cinema but yet how many little women have there been how many a star is born have there been and so I don't know it's just very interesting to think about but yeah I'm, I'm more interested to hear your guys' thoughts on it because maybe there's something I'm not getting about the whole movie as in general well to counter that I do really love this movie it, it was it, it was in my top 10 for 2019, which was a particularly really strong year for movies. And uh, Greta Gerwig uh, is probably one of my favorite directors and writers, even though she's only directed two films, the other one being Lady Bird. And going from that to uh, the most iconic American novels, I think she did 
a really, really good job of adapting it. Because I've seen a few of the other adaptations. Uh, before this one, the most famous one was probably the one from 94 with Winona Ryder in it. And that one I thought was all right. I think it was a bit overrated. But this one, I think it tells the story in such a unique and different way. It, it's nonlinear and it jumps back and forth through time all throughout its runtime. But I think it works in its favor just because we really see these experiences of the March sisters and examining just like what they want more out of life, especially looking through it through modern eyes. It does have a really, really powerful message about independence and sort of a subtle like fe feminist theme to it. And I, I think that's probably what makes it so identifiable and for modern audiences today, which because me personally, I not a huge fan of like period pieces because they are real to me i find them really slow or boring but this one uh when i first saw it even when i rewatched it i was thoroughly engaged and really entertained by it i think just from beginning to end it's such a wholesome movie and i really really like it this is uh not only in my top 10 of 2019 but this is in my top 10 of all time it's just there's a quality about the directing and the writing that is just so entertaining and interesting to watch and there's something about all the acting except emma watson but i'll get into emma watson later that's just spectacular and just from moment to moment like i think the best way to describe why i like this movie is when we were projecting it at film scene i was projecting it because i work at film scene little brag there um but i've probably seen this movie like 10 times when we were projecting it not in total but just because I'd like hit play then I'd go down and do more work and then I'd go up to the booth and then I'd be like and I'll do my homework right after I watch this part of Little Women and then I would watch the next part and then the next part and then I would have to go do something and then I would come back and watch the next part and it's just every scene is just so fun to watch and there's so many little details that are fun and just really well done. Like there's nothing about this movie that isn't well done except for Emma Watson. And I oh, I think Greta Gerwig was robbed of a director nomination of a writing win. There's just, oh my God. And Florence Pugh, Florence Pugh is a master class of acting in this film. And she was also robbed. I have a lot of opinions about this movie. I will say the one thing I actually do agree with Matthew on that I think works well for this movie is the movie's like two hours and 13 minutes. It goes by pretty fast for a period piece. I was really surprised by that. Like I always set a timer on my phone to know when like a movie will end. So like I can kind of just figure out my day after that. If that makes sense anyway, it doesn't matter. And I was like, oh my God, I've been only watching this for 20 minutes, but like 30 minutes has gone by, if that makes sense. So I, I actually will give it that because period pieces like Matthew, I, I just don't really go for all the time because they just tend to move a lot slower than I usually like with my films, but this works really well. I will say though, I did not like the nonlinear storytelling because that was confusing to follow. I was like, wait, what is going on? But it was interesting. It, it helps on a second watch, I think, just going through the nonlinear storytelling. Cause I, when I saw it, when it first came out, I, I remember being confused at first, but that, cause there's also not a lot of indications of when you're jumping back and forth through time because each of the actresses, play the same character regardless of age like the movie takes place over the course of like seven years but there's really no indication by like how like much they age in terms of like well like when they get older or younger but when you when you watch it again like there's a lot of hints more just in the story and thematically of like why they're jumping back and forth through time to connect like either sort of a time of joy 
mixed to a time of sadness or even things that relate to current and future events. And none of the other adaptations of Little Women have done that. And I think why I like this one the best is because that nonlinear narrative really adds to the emotional moments of the movie. And Little Women as a story, I think, is already re- really grounded in emotion. But this one just really sells it and gives it an identity that's unlike any other versions. Is there, I've got to ask though, is there, are there other reasons why this one is set apart? Because I've never seen any of the other versions, partially because I had no interest in Little Women until this came out. And afterwards, out of spite that there could ever be another version of Little Women. But are there other things that set this apart or is it mainly just the nonlinear storytelling? As far as I remember, like, well, it's been a while since I've seen the other adaptations, but the nonlinear storyline is the big, the big one. I think also another thing too is that uh, in most of the adaptations, uh, they have another actress play. I think I think it's Amy who is Florence Pugh in this movie in the '94 version, because uh, uh, Amy's the youngest of all the sisters, which I didn't know until recently because I always thought Beth was the youngest. Since spoiler alert, something happens to her in the movie and it has a really big effect on it. But in the 94 version, Amy is played by uh, Kirsten Dunst as a 12 year old and then Samantha Mathis as uh, when she's older. And that's one of the biggest differences. And I think that works in this version too, just because it like, regardless of age, like everyone's still the same person. And we see them sort of grow up, not just in appearance, but more in maturity and personality and it does, it does work more, I think, in the story's favor, because what always confused me is that in the 94 version, especially, I always thought that uh, Kirsten Dunst was Beth and Samantha Mathis was Amy. So, and the two don't really look alike either. So that's what kind of made it worse. So I think it's better just to have one actress play a character throughout the entire runtime. And this one does it pretty good. I didn't like Florence Pugh playing like a 12 year old or something. I thought it was really weird because she was probably like early to mid 20s when she filmed this, but she's acting like she was 12. And I was like, I don't know, that felt a little weird to me. And I feel like maybe it would have been like not a bigger surprise, but like have her show up like when she's older and be like, oh my God, it's Florence Pugh because she's, you know, an up and coming actress. And she is really good in the role. I just thought it was a little weird when she's like acting like she's not even a teen yet. It was just very strange to me. The only time I found it weird was when she was in the school because everybody else was very clearly like nine and she was 24 and sitting there. But otherwise, I th- I get why they did it because I feel like it would be kind of creepy if Lori married Amy and like we had seen him interact with like a little girl and then we see him interact with full grown Amy and he's like, I'm going to marry you. But I feel like a little bit of that edge is taken off just because... Um, he interacts with her and she's always seems to be grown up, which could be seen as creepy in a certain way, I suppose. Also, I'm just going to say it. Uh, we can talk about spoilers. This is like a 200 year old book. Beth dies and it's, it's such a good scene. I, it, oh my God. The first time I saw it, I didn't cry, but every time now I am this close to crying just because Beth it's like every single character in this movie, except for Emma Watson's character is like is so sort of well-defined and you care about each of them and then when Beth dies it's really heartbreaking because even though she has a minor role she Greta Gerwig managed to piece together this sort of larger psyche of her and make her seem she really felt like the best of all of them and then she just dies and it's just heart-wrenching and I love it uh 
I will say though about the nonlinear storytelling, my one disappointment about the home release of this film is that they clarify it. Like during the first flashback, there's a subtitle that says seven years earlier, but in the theatrical cut, they didn't have that. And I kind of respected that, that you sort of had to figure it out. And then you were like, oh yeah, when it's orange, it's in the past. And when it's blue, it's in the present. But the seven years early, it just rubs me the wrong way. There's that and one other little change that I'm like, but it was already perfect. And it disappoints me. I didn't, I didn't know they added that in the home, in the home release. Cause I don't remember that being, I thought, I thought it was in the theatrical release. I have seen the theatrical release a whole lot of times. There was no caption. Yeah. <laughs> uh, huh. So they probably dumbed it down then because they probably got a lot of complaints. Like, well, it's interesting. Like, I don't know what's going on. It's interesting you say their captions to like indicate uh, what year it is or something because I checked this out from the library. I like didn't watch it on like a streaming service or anything and it didn't have it. It was just a regular DVD. So I don't know if they just kept it to like, you know, Blu-ray or something, but they didn't have it. That's why like I was so confused with the non-linear storytelling. Maybe it's like in the education edition because I watched this on Swank, which if you're a UI with student is a very accessible way to watch a lot of movies. Just go to the well, I, website if you want. But yeah, it might've just been the education I, I, edition. I watched on Stars and it had the seven years earlier. So, and the funny thing is I do have the Blu-ray, but I haven't watched the Blu-ray yet. So I should probably, when I go back home, I'll watch it and, and confirm whether yeah, it's on it's there like or the not. Version you're watching or something. Yeah, hopefully, because they also added at one point, Amy very clearly ADRs in uh, like her fiance's name and oh, how I missed you. And it's very distracting and I don't like it at all. I have very particular about this movie and I don't like that they changed any of it. Um, hold on, I have, I have stuff, there it is. Uh, I did wanna talk about, cause you guys said that it felt like it went really fast and I feel like that's true right up until the third act which is the one issue I have with this movie. The third act seems like it slows down a whole lot and I was wondering if you guys felt the same. I, I agree. I think the third act is, even though that's where all everything gets resolved in the end, that's probably the slowest. And it's the only time where it really doesn't um, flash back. So it's probably the most linear portion of the movie. But yeah, I also think like, like as much as I really like the ending, especially and uh, Saoirse's like monologue, just about like what women are should be doing, like just sort of their independence. I think that's such a really well acted scene. I feel like the ending does kind of like meander a bit where it's just like, okay, we we're resolving everything, but still just kind of feels like they're doing stuff to pad out the film length a bit. But other than that, like, I don't really have a lot of problems with the pacing. If anything, on a second watch, it moves a lot faster just because I knew what to expect from that nonlinear structure. And, but even on the first watch, it wasn't that bad either from what I recall. Yeah, it really, my main issue is sort of when they start printing the book because everything is sort of ended at that point. And I get, they sort of explain why the ending takes so long in the film because at the beginning of the book or at the beginning of the film, Jill March is selling her book to this publisher or not a book, a story. And he's like, it's too long. And she's like, I had my sinners repent. And they are sort of closing up all those arcs. But the last sort of scene is like, feels like 10 minutes when she's getting the book printed and getting the gold leaf dusted off. And I don't know. I don't like that scene much, but that's the one part of this movie I don't like. It's the only part because it's fantastic and I love it. 
And then I wanted to ask you, Orson, because I know you're interested to hear why we love the movie so much, but I'm interested in why you sort of didn't vibe with it. I don't know. I just, I think Greta Gerwig's an interesting director. I really like Lady Bird. I think that's a good one. I haven't revisited it in a while, but this was just one where I just don't think it was for me. I, I'm surprised because it has so many good actors and actresses in it, but maybe it's just the story or something. But yeah, this just felt very, to me personally, Oscar Beatty, just like it was trying to be like an art film. We're supposed to be taken seriously. And like, I don't know, just to me that aren't the, these aren't the kind of movies I really go for. Luckily with, you know, being on Bijou and film scene, it's exposed me to so many different movies than I'm used to. And I've liked most of them, but like Sound of Metal was one. That's a perfect example. A movie that in a way was very Oscar rated. I really liked that one. This just, I was just not one I really went for because I don't know, it just felt very pretentious to me. That's perfectly fair. It is, it is a little bit pretentious at moments, but it's also so beautiful. Just, it is a good story. I just, maybe it's one with like age and maybe if like my girlfriend comes over and we watch it, maybe I'll enjoy it more because maybe again, it's just something I'm missing, but yeah, I just, I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. There's all, there's always stuff we don't vibe with. Uh, and I wanted to ask a more sort of philosophical question about this movie because they changed some stuff with Little Women, the book, like they changed the ending a little bit. And so it's uh, not Sam, uh, Joe doesn't technically get together with Frederick and like they change that a lot and they change issues or they change some stuff in it. And I was wondering if you can do that to like a classic text like Little Women or if that's sort of taboo. I like, for me, I haven't read the book. So like, I'm, I, I think since it's an adaptation, like I feel like an artist is free to do like kind of in a way whatever he or she wants to do with the source material because like look at the shining for example that is technically an adaptation but kubrick just said screw the book i'm just gonna make my own art film pretty much and i feel like even though little women is regarded as like one of the all-time classics i do feel like it's free to be changed or sort of interpreted in different ways that's the beauty of filmmaking is like it's interpretation and you're allowed to tell your own story based off a of source material and I I know the in in the other film adaptations of Little Women it ends with um uh Joe going off with uh what, what's the dude's name uh Friedrich yeah and I I think I like how it's like the way they change it in this version more just because it's it's more appropriate for just like the sort of uh, perspectives of modern day and I, I don't think it ruins the ending in any way because I still think the overall story and the message is so strong and that's what's the most resonating about it is just how like it really pushes for those themes of female independence in a really good way and not one that's like preachy I don't think like it's not like a, a Captain Marvel style movie where it just like pushes it to the point where it's just like so like irritating at some points this one it's much more subdued in a way but it's still just as effective yeah i liked what matthew wrote up with like kind of captain marvel like bashing you over the head with like no this is what we're trying to say and i'm like oh my god i get it you know i'm not stupid but like you know and little women it didn't really feel like it i think i think yeah matthew had said it earlier that monologue Saoirse Ronan gives at the end was just really well done and then you know even though the movie didn't have as much of an impact on me as it did you guys that monologue still was just very powerful I, I'm going to have to disagree with you on Captain Marvel a little bit, but we won't get into that right now. I, I thought it was fine, but I feel like 
I don't know. Of the two, mon- there's two monologues in this film that are very much uh, rah rah, let's go uh, feminism, which is awesome. But the one I always gravitate to isn't Joe's at the end where she's talking about women have so much more than hearts. It's always the one where Amy is in the painting studio and she's like, marriage is always an economic proposition. If I had kids, they would be his. If I had money, it would become his. Oh, I love, like that monologue is just so perfect. And apparently it was written an hour before they shot the scene just on a whim on notebook paper. And it became an almost Oscar winning monologue, which she should have won the Oscar for best supporting actress. I'll say that. Uh, Laura Dern robbed her and I will never forgive Laura Dern for that. But Amy's so good. All of them are so good, except Emma Watson, which I'll bring up now because I might as well. Emma Watson, I feel is the reason that Greta Gerwig was robbed of a director nomination. Her performance in this is subpar. It's not great. I don't think she's a very good actor. And if I could cut one thing from this movie, it would just be to remove all of her scenes because none of them really add much. They're always the parts where I lose interest and I just, that's my other complaint with this film. Emma Watson and Meg. Yeah, that was very strange. Every time I would see like the trailers or like the posters and it said Emma Watson, I'm like, all the other people I can see totally being in this because they've like worked with, you know, in that crowd before, but then Emma Watson, I'm like, that's just very strange. I feel like we just know her as not, she's obviously broken away from Hermione, but just the name Emma Watson, it just felt very strange to have her in this. I know what you mean. She was fine in it, but it was just, I don't know. It looked really weird when I would see it. I, I, I like Emma Watson in this movie, but I do think in general, the character of Meg, I find to be kind of a weaker character amongst the, the four sisters, especially because this is a problem with the other adaptations too. It's not just this one. I think Meg uh, is the one who accepts, I guess, the social norm of being like, okay, we have to marry, even though she she's um, like a very, very talented as being like an actress in the story. Like, she's just like, yeah, I have my own dreams, but it comes to the point where it's like, we have to accept, I guess, sort of like the realities of life. But I think in a way that like, I find her character just really kind of boring in a way, at least amongst the other characters. I think all the other three sisters are very interesting people and she's probably the least interesting, but she also takes on the role of like, I guess, sort of like in a way, a motherly figure next to Marmy because she's the oldest of all four of them. But I don't know, like I didn't have a problem with Emma Watson's performance. It's more just, I think, the character of Meg in general, I don't find nearly as identifiable. That That's my problem with, the, I guess, her, but it's not nothing against Emma Watson because I thought she was fine in it. That's fair. And yeah, I do think her character is the least interesting because all the other ones have very interesting life philosophies. Like Joe is nobody will ever forget me. Amy is I would be great or I would have or I would be nothing or I would be loved if I couldn't be respected or vice versa is the line. And then Beth is just, I want to play music for my family and live life like it's fun. And then of course she dies because Louisa May Alcott had no heart. Um, But yeah, Meg is just very much, I'm going to go and fulfill my social place in life and but rebel a little bit by marrying a poor tutor. And it's just, I don't know. I, and again, I don't think Emma Watson was fantastic in it, but that's fine. I did, I also want to mention again, the Oscar snubs because this was only, this only won one Oscar for best costume design. And I feel like it was one of the best movies of the year. 
I I really hoped that this would have won Best Adapted Screenplay over Jojo Rabbit. Nothing against Jojo Rabbit because that's also a really great movie. But this one, I just felt like the way it was written, not only based off a classic book, but even just adapting it in such a different and unique way with a really promising message, I feel like stood out a lot more compared to the to Jojo Rabbit satire. And I, I do think Greta Gerwig should have been nominated for Best Director as well. My only issue is that 2019 was such a stacked year for movies in general, just like so many great movies. My opinion, Sam Mendes should have been kicked off Best Director and put Greta Gerwig in there because she did a far better job directing this movie than what Sam Mendes did. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I could not, as much as I love this, there's no way this would have won Best Picture, obviously, because Parasite was was in the running. But I I think Florence Florence Pugh should have won too. Like, not that I dislike Laura Dern. I thought she was great in in not Marriage Story, but Florence Pugh did a great job of portraying the same character in like two different time periods and making them distinctly different, and really just showed how much range she has as an actress. And yeah, in a way, it was sort of snubbed, but I, I could I can accept it. Yeah, I'll agree with Matthew. I think it's very strange that. Uh, Greta Gerwig was not nominated for Best Director when they want to aim for more diversity, but yet it was like so many men in the category last year where I agree, Sam Mendes, just 1917 is a definitely a, a style over substance movie. And like, I, it was, I didn't really like that movie, but yeah, I think, I think Greta Gerwig at least should have been nominated. I think she would have won, but that's just my hot take. I think it's just such a spectacular movie and it's so, I know I've said it before, but it's so beautiful and it didn't necessarily have to be. Just the way she captures sunlight when it bounces off these old dresses is really fun. And there's so many just beautiful wide shots that she lingers with. Or even the scene where where Joe and Lori are sort of arguing on the hill about whether they should get married or not. It looks fantastic. And they chose such like a perfect hill to do it on. And it didn't have to be. It could have been them sitting in a room talking and it still would have been interesting. But there's just so many little details that are just so spectacular. And I've got nothing against Parasite. But I think, wait, did Bong Joon-ho win Best Director? Yeah. I thought so. I, I think Greta Gerwig should have done it, which is why I think Emma Watson's performance is the thing that robbed her because it's the one thing that isn't fantastic. But I don't know. That's I think go, going back to what you said about the visuals, that's another thing that really like made me love this movie is just it's visually just so beautiful. And a bit of a flex I saw this on 35 millimeter at um Chicago's music box theater and that was a really awesome experience just because like the way Gerwig shot this movie just in these natural landscapes with the lighting and just like even like just the like the blocking and the direction it looked like a painting come to life it, it actually reminded me not, not to the extent but like it reminded me a lot of Barry Lyndon in a way just the way the sort of these like I guess period pieces were shot in a way that looked like a painting come to life with what you said the really wide shots like the hills and like even just like the nature and all that it just it really brings you into the time period and I think that's what a period piece is supposed to do is make you feel like you've been transported back to the 1800s and Little Women does just such an amazing job with it and with it being on shot on 35 it only adds to sort of the beauty of just how big the screen can can be yeah although i've got to say even though it's supposed to like what you said with drawing you into the time period i also feel it's strangely timeless 
even though it's very much set in the 1800s, it's also, there's something about it that doesn't feel 1800s-y. It feels very much just like happening in the world somehow, which is just a spectacular achievement, especially because like the civil war was going on and they talk about the civil war, but you're still like, yeah, it's the civil war, it's going on. What else is new? Um, and they do that, I think with a relatively good level of tact which shocked me because they don't just brush it off and they're not just like, he's at war. They actually, even in a movie that's definitely not about race, they address it somewhat where uh, Laura Dern's character is handing out blankets and she says, I've spent too long being ashamed of my country. And then this other woman is like, you should still be. And she says, yeah. And it's, there's just so many things that are done with just such a level of grace that didn't necessarily have to be done with that level of grace, but it's just so effectively done that I, I could watch this a thousand times and never get bored of it. It's just spectacular. Uh, but that being said, I don't have a whole lot else to say about it. I could go on about it being fantastic, but yeah. I guess final thoughts, we'll wrap this one up a little bit early, I suppose, but yeah. I think it's an interesting movie. It's very well done. It's very well acted. It just sadly wasn't for me. I'm glad there are people out there who have like, there's like an audience for this film. Maybe it's one, like I said earlier, I'll revisit in time and be like, oh my God, what was, I was missing out. Like I could have totally liked this, but yeah, I think just as it stands right now, it's going to be a while before I go back and see it. If I ever see it again, I think Greta Gerwig is an interesting director. I like Lady Bird. I think maybe she should, I hate to say it like this, just stick to original stories. But other than that, I, I think, yeah, it's okay. This is, this is a really, really great movie. And I think as an adaptation of one of the most classic pieces of American literature, it does a really good job of capturing the spirit of it while also maintaining its own identity. And I like what you said about how even though this movie takes place in the 1800s, it has this really timeless feel. And that just shows... I think just how well the story is told, the fact that it came out during like around after the Civil War and takes place around that, this could be loved and appreciated like a hundred years from now. I think it's still gonna have some sort of mainstream effect and everything about it's really good. It's, it's super well acted, it's really well told, it's well shot, it's well directed. Like every minute of it is just, it's such a wholesome, wholesome movie. I really, really love it. And I'm gonna give it a nine out of 10. I think, um, yeah, I think it's an amazing film. I think everything that they changed from the original novel was for the better. I think everything about it was just so precisely done and so beautifully done. And there's so much stuff going on about, about love and unrequited love, and then also very much requited love. And then there's also stuff about art going on underneath that. And it's all set within this really beautiful film and it's just spectacular. And it's a 10 out of 10 for me. Maybe 9.9, .9, but even the things that I don't like can be overlooked, um, even though I am very particular. And if I had my way, I would have a cut without the subtitle and without uh, Amy saying hi to Fred Vaughn, just because it irked me just the smallest amount. But it's, oh, it's so good and I can't recommend it enough. But that'll wrap up this episode of Bijou Banter. Be sure to turn into that. Be sure to tune in next week uh, if you want for a DC spectacular. We're going to be talking about what was it, 2017's Wonder Woman? The new one, at any rate, not Wonder Woman 84. Before we talk about 
the new thing that's being all the rage but is super long the snyder cut which will be a fun thing and if you don't know the snyder cut is a new cut of a movie called justice league that came out and was terrible and they demanded that the original release be released and they shot a new one for it so yeah that'll be fun but i've been calvin i've been orson and i've been matthew we will see you all next time Bye bye